Welcome everyone to That DV Show, where the team from Digital Village dive into the latest tech trends and news influencing change across the world and business, exploring everything from the impact to organizations, right down to the business, culture, and individuals. All while helping you, our listeners, to learn from our guests' experiences. You're listening to episode three of the show, Reimagining Education and Manufacturing. In this episode, Paul, Jason, Luke are joined by two incredible guests, Trevor Woods, CIO of University of Sydney, to talk about his experience dealing with the impact of the economic changes on educational space, and Nick Gonias, founder of The Circulus, talking about the impact of traditional manufacturing on the environment and the changes that need to be made by consumers to focus less on the consumption and more on the use to eliminate waste and maximize sustainability. Enjoy. So let's get started. Um, Our first guest, Uh, is Trevor Woods. Um, The tertiary education sector has taken a bit of a pummeling in the past 12 months, Trevor, um, with the move online not only decimating university income in Australia by as much as 80%, I believe. Um, On top of that, you've got deteriorating relations with China, which is your major customer, uh, which has caused a rethink, I think, in your operating model and the marketing that you undertake um, of large service-based export employers like, um, I beg your pardon, I got that wrong. Let me just read that one again. <laughs> um, you, you're, uh, the industry itself is um, uh, employing over 240,000 people. So it's clearly a very big contributor to the economy. Against this backdrop, um, Sydney University uh, CIO Trevor Woods has been asked to perform the equivalent of the loaves and fishes parable every day. <laughs> Uh, delivering services with ever depleting resources. So welcome, Trevor. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for you over the last um, 12 to 18 months. Um, tell us, how have you managed to get through this? Great, thank you uh, for having me here. Um, if I rewind well over a year ago now, just when the COVID pandemic was hitting in, in China, um, we uh, on the IT team kind of realized that if this gets worse, it's going to, uh, cause us to have to jump into action. And everything I had known um, about the university, I'd only been there a few months, uh, told me that we weren't quite ready to make the leap online. It was gonna take several years and a lot of money. Uh, And so that preparatory work though, of rallying the staff to just say, if something happens, how how can we move things online? How do we make sure it stays up with everybody hitting it? And even more important, how do we make sure that um, students internationally or in China uh, could access that? And of course, most people know about the great firewall of China that slows things down and blocks it. So real-time lectures and other sorts of things would really have an impact. So that's really where the story started uh, of the team jumping into action and delivering some uh, bespoke new uh, um, uh, ways of doing things that not only helped us uh, elsewhere in the university pivot online from instructors putting their developing their content differently uh, to having a place to actually uh, put it and then I was making sure that it, it could get delivered mm. and that probably was the beginning that kicked off um, a whole bunch of responses from across the university to just rise to the challenges of last year so clearly you know the university had to, to respond really quickly to the situation um, how did you go about actually putting together the team that was going to do that yeah, well, one of the sayings I'm fond of is planning's more important than plans, um, or plans don't survive the first contact with the enemy. And so really, last year is a good example of um, continuing 
uh, continuing to adapt to the circumstances as they hit. And then rather than just saying, well, this is what we've been doing the last few weeks and it works, let's keep doing it, um, change it. So we went from uh, an impromptu war room inside ICT, or the, the technology department, where we had uh, 25 to 30 people basically in a stand-up every day trying to think of every possible thing we could do. Whether, And we said, don't worry about whether it's legal or not. And of course, we don't want to do illegal things. But we don't <laughs> want to constrain people's ideas and innovations with arbitrary uh, assumptions. And so we just said, don't worry about whether people will go for it or not. Uh, you know, let's just take all the constraints off brainstorming. And that worked. Uh, and then we had a larger pandemic response team at the university, and that went through the motions. And, then, and as this sort of hit our shores and became more of a problem, um, we iterated through several more responses where, where it was much more formalized, and we had people from all over the university uh, responsible for things together, basically in a room uh, to manage the response in real time. And can you give us any examples of how the working practices might have changed during that time? Because, I mean, obviously you have, you know, it's quite a structured department, I think, the ICT area within Sydney University. And in fact, the whole university. And the whole yeah. university. <laughs> so, and, you know, universities are known for um, being slow and uh, really analyzing problems and making sure everyone's good to move. And that's just not the kind of thing that you can do to respond to what we dealt with last year. Um, so I think it was a good mix of preserving what's important around the culture of people wanting to work together, but getting together in real time in the room, uh, connecting virtually out to experts on their team to make a quick decision and having everyone there to say, yep, that's the decision we're going to go with and then execute immediately. And that energy buzz, uh, that um, feeling of we're getting stuff done and it's good and we're helping keep the university afloat. Um, was really infectious. So we find ourselves now as things are not quite as hectic and the problem's not quite as big, um, starting to slip back into the old ways of doing things. And interestingly, most people uh, that I run into say, wasn't last year, I know I'm not supposed to say this about COVID, but wasn't last year great that we, we worked so well together and we got things done? And we just need to figure out how we can make uh, that good part of it uh, be part of our normal everyday operation now. So how, how do you harness that energy? Because you know, clearly, people got a lot of a, a big buzz out of responding in that scenario, and presumably, you know, they had to sort of take their laptops home and and be working from home, but providing services to the university remotely. Um, how, how do you maintain that energy and and keep people connected? So that's the big question that we're grappling with right now and trying to to work through. Um, I think. It's, it's very easy for people to rise to the occasion uh, around a, a cause they all believe in and, uh, and just want to help out. Um, and entropy sets in uh, without that urgency. And you know, if you think about it even at an individual level, forget about an entire university uh, of, of preserving that and what you need to do. But on an individual level, um, you sort of slip back into the normal way of doing things uh, just because the pressure's off. So it's hard probably for us personally to work through that. And if you aggregate that out uh, across multiple teams that historically hadn't been used to working together, maybe hadn't needed to, it gets harder. So I know I've just described more of the problem, but um, I wanted to say that because it's probably not a silver bullet thing that if we just did this, uh, it, it would be fixed. And, you know, we're really talking about culture change, which is behavior change. 
and sustaining that over a long period of time. Um, and, and so you, it's not one of those things that you sort of fix and move on. So I think we're trying to figure out what are those things where we can, uh, when we, we see a problem, instead of doing things the old way, where we get lots of papers written and lots of committees over months of time, instead we say, well, who are the key people that could help uh, decide what to do and then execute? And then get them together in a room. And not so much trying to manufacture the, uh, or simulate what the, the pandemic was like uh, with the panic, but be able to encourage people, um, you have permission now to figure out the problem, figure out the solution, and do it. And if it goes wrong, um, that's okay. You'll fix it, just like we did in the pandemic. Because not everything we did there was right, but we right. quickly pivoted. And, you know, us learning as individuals and teams that it's okay when things go wrong, we're, we're still on this early part of the journey, I think. That must be a really hard thing to, to actually get people to accept, isn't it, in, in, the, in that kind of institutional environment? That mistakes That, that it's okay to make a mistake? It is, because we have very smart people there, and, <laughs> and, and there are, and you want to get it right. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we don't want to waste money. We don't want to uh, have hiccups. It's interestingly, um, the whole area around research is about trial and error. So, so yeah, there's a bit right, of a, exactly a, that, a dichotomy. Yeah. So, but not every part of the university that has, you know, that process necessarily applies, uh, yeah. or, or we allow it to apply to, yeah. to the other parts. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you guys were onto this like quite early. So you and your team before maybe there's a general realization this is going to be a big deal. We were, yeah. yeah. I mean, we started seeing uh, well before uh, Australia Day, if yeah. I, as the Canadian trying to remember yes. when all the dates <laughs> are. Um, and, uh, and, and we just sort of realized, well, actually, we should start preparing for this. And uh, I still remember I was out for dinner uh, on a Saturday night with my wife, and my boss called, and he, he hadn't called me much yet, and I was still probably new. And he said, oh, look, uh, I hate to bother you, but I think we're going to need on Monday to get get ready uh, figure out what to do here and okay. and the good news was I said well we've actually are ready we've yeah, called yeah. around the VP of Amazon and the, this person executive from this company and we've we've actually landed on uh, a couple of key solutions and one of them was with uh, Alibaba cloud um, which was just about tapping into contacts of who knows who and yeah. and uh, probably 3 p.m. one day I talked to uh, one of the guys from there and described the problem. He says, look, I think we can figure something out. It might be custom. At 9 o'clock the next morning, he had a, a sketch of what it should look like, sat down with some of our engineers, and by 2 o'clock had a solution the next day, basically not in production so much using it, but, but a prototype working. Sure. And it's that kind of fast response working yeah. with partners and, and people that was key. There were a couple other other really important things uh, beyond that, but that was almost the silver bullet. If we didn't have that, nothing else we did would have mattered because it allowed us to have fast, reliable internet access in and out of China and be able to have real-time lectures delivered and, and other sorts of things. Was, was, that, um, was that part of the, the plan anyway, going online in terms of like how far ahead of Right. That? Yeah, well, look, uh, People gave me stats that said probably less than 10% of uh, what we did was online around uh, teaching. Yeah. Uh, and basically within just a few weeks, I can't remember if it was five or, or seven weeks, um, we had pretty much almost gone 100%. Uh, 
Uh, now, not quite 100% because there was still some clinical placements and lab work that were done in the medical area that you've got to do physical. But, mm. but e even things that people said, you could never do this online, mm. we figured out how to do it. Uh, because we had to. Was it forcing there was no right? forcing mechanism. mechanism. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I, familiar with other universities and what they have done, you could have said we will spend two hundred million dollars over five years yeah. to try and get fifty percent of our courses online, and we probably would have spent the money, uh, not hit fifty percent, and uh, had a sub subpar experience. So. I know there's examples of this in most organizations where you just rise to the occasion and, and you accomplish far more than you ever thought you could. But it, it seems to be about taking a different approach to problem solving. Yep. You know, mm -hmm. Because if you have a process and that process doesn't match the situation that you're in, it's not going to work. And yep. obviously you have to decide, right, are we going to start taking risks here? You know, certain mitigated risks that you can see you're going to be able to handle, then why not? It's kind of agile yeah. thinking, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, different approach, but still with the people that matter. So you have various expertise to weigh in on things, and when you're dealing with a pandemic at a university level, you have to think about legal issues, uh, how you communicate those things, how you uh, manage things on the ground with air conditioners and cleaning and so on. And so you need those people together uh, in the room to be able to weigh in on a decision. And I still remember the height of the pandemic with the crisis management uh, committee that we had, which ultimately led with the head of the university, the vice chancellor, making a decision. Um, we would try and prepare very short two to three page papers that basically mm -hmm. say, the experts have looked at this, it's been quick, uh, and the recommendation is this, and here's some alternatives that we looked at. And um, I remember one day we started at about 8 or 9 a.m., 9 a.m. before we were rolling, and by 1 o'clock we had 14 papers already in print, hot, wow. coming off wow. the printer, wow. just to say, okay, the next thing here, we've got a decision on this item, <laughs> wow. and, uh, and how it flew. And uh, wow. that's not sustainable uh, mm -hmm. to do, but, but the key thing there is, yeah, it was rapid decision-making because we had to, but we relied on the right people with the right expertise to work together and compromise, mm -hmm. uh, because you couldn't do everything perfectly the way you wanted. You mm -hmm. just had to um, pick, a, pick a way and go with it, and then adapt if it was really wrong. So that was obviously way quicker than you know, the normal processes you've described, and also it sounds like it was a lot cheaper. Absolutely. So yeah. do you think there's an argument to be presented about why aren't we doing this all the time? I think there is, and I know other organizations have tried to do this, you know, words yeah. like agile and co-locating and how, how you do those things. And I came from um, an environment where we had tried to bake some of these things into, um, into how you do things. And so... Uh, big projects, uh, especially IT projects that might take months or years, we were executing in days or weeks uh, for much less money and an immediate return on investment as well. So that's one of the things, at least from my perspective, around technology, and technology enables a lot of business processes and services. If we can, if we can take some of those principles in, that are tried and true in other organizations as BAU, but kind of now we have our own experience that says it is possible. We were there, we did it, we like it. Mm. Uh, so there's hope in a sense, rather than this arbitrary um, idea that we could all work differently. And uh, just because it worked at a bank doesn't mean it'll work here. So I think we can tap into that and say, um, let's do more of that and, and do the hard yards to figure out how to systematize it and, and bet it down. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. I wonder how procurement thought about all that. 
Oh, look, and procurement was... Uh, well, they survive. <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> People complain about all the areas in their organization at the university were no different. Um, I like to tell our IT people that you know all the areas we're complaining about, they're complaining about us yeah, <laughs> as well. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. you know, there's shows written about IT. So, um, so and you know, procurement was one of the the great areas that came to the table and said we have to move fast. We had to procure new services and products exactly. within days uh, or weeks, and uh, and had to do it properly. And 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 they did. Yeah. Uh, it was great. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. So so Trevor. Talking more broadly about um, the university sector and, and its position in the economy in, in Australia, there's been plenty in the press to suggest that um, tertiary education in particular has taken a massive hit over the last year. Um, but now there is evidence that we're coming out of those doldrums and more people are registering to come to universities in Australia, is that right? Well, it depends on the university, but um, it's real, uh, higher education in Australia is actually a very important industry. I think it's our third largest export. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of things that hit the media, like why, why do we have international students taking spaces from domestic mm. students? And most of it's all uh, wrong and ill-informed. I mean, the, the way the funding model shifted years ago was, uh, a dependence on international students, and it actually provides a better education for domestic students. It allows us to to um, educate more of them at a less uh, less of an impact to the uh, the taxpayer. Now, I'm not arguing whether that's right or wrong. It's just the way the way it is. Um, and so, our dependence on international students, and so many universities' dependence on China, uh, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. We've got a whole geopolitical environment um, heating up. Uh, between China and many other countries that we're mixed up in. Um, the reality is um, China could very uh, easily ratchet up their great wall of, uh, great firewall of China and cut off the solution that we've got and, uh, and we would have to pivot and others would very quickly as well. So, um, so there's, all, there's challenging times ahead, I think, for uh, universities in Australia and uh, how we deal with... Um, moving to a more digital way of doing things, supporting research that way, teaching, uh, obviously online is, is, is an obvious one, but modernizing many of the other processes that we have um, so that we can weather uh, and maybe adapt more quickly if there are major changes to um, the so-called market conditions yes. of where our customers are. Yeah. So, so um, looking into your crystal ball here a little bit, five years ahead, Let's assume that we don't go to war with China. That would be good. Um, do you think any of the lessons learned during this last sort of 15, 16 months are going to have an impact on where we get to in four or five years' time? I think, I think they will. Um, I mean, one of the quotes I'm fond of is that we overestimate the impact in the short term and underestimate the longer term, 5, 10, 15 years out. And I, and I think it's, um, it's not just what we experienced ourselves uh, as a university around um, dealing with COVID and, and so on. It's going to be the lasting impact of what happens with other sectors and what happens with government policy that will continue to, to shift with us. And there's been major changes in government policy around how, um, how universities will, will function, how they'll be funded. Uh, and if that continues, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to um, we'll have to be ready to do things differently. Yeah. I, I think the other thing I would say about universities, we're doing well right now, probably for a variety of reasons, maybe because of how uh, quickly as a university we came together and responded. But 
Um, also, we're a very strong brand, being the oldest university in Australia. People want to come to us. So our students right now uh, are up uh, this year, and that's not what we thought would happen. The question is, will it be that way next year and the year after? So um, yeah. we want to be very careful not to uh, rest on our laurels or um, have a false sense of security that everything will be okay mm. when really when really it won't be. Because there's many other universities in, in the country where um, they're probably more negatively impacted early, mm. uh, earlier than we might be with, with all of this. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. has got, you know, I mean, it's another, you know, we look at the U.S. market and uh, you're talking about tier two, uh, division two, division D2, D3 universities sort of in colleges disappearing. Right. Yep. Right? Yep. And we're not talking about that here, but... I mean, there's just so many of them there that uh, this change in, is forcing a real, a real market shift in terms of where value is going to be derived and delivered. So, it, it's you know they're experiencing it. I think they're going to experience it at a much greater level than what we're feeling at the moment. Yeah. In my yeah. view, so. yeah. Mar I mean, Clayton Christensen, Christensen's good book on uh, on disruption theory. Um, and I think he wrote a book in the early 2000s around disrupting class that some of these things that impacted Kodak and other, mm. other uh, uh, organizations. And we've seen dis industries hugely disrupted in the last decade or so, um, that that's coming to higher ed. And I think um, we had probably three classes of people, those that drank the Kool-Aid and said, yes, and it's going to happen next year. Well, they were wrong. Yeah. Um, those that said, we're universities, it'll never change, and probably a bunch in the middle that actually didn't quite care. But I think COVID has, has probably accelerated that uh, a little bit, uh, and it'll be interesting to see with all the other changes in the world, what does the role of accreditation and, and universities play uh, with companies like Amazon or Google or, or other big groups um, almost starting up their own universities in a sense and training and offering um, their specialized, specialized kind of. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, skill set, teach them how to program or whatever? And, and will there be a melding of that with universities and sure. partnerships? So I think it'll be very different in five or ten years. Yeah. Do you think, um, you know, there the different, I mean, there was like a big program of change of um, bringing education to people online when, you know, traditionally you go to a class and, and you, you know, consume the content that way. But in terms of like the actual education, do you think that's been imp impacted at all? Well, I think, um, so, so my personal view on this, and um, I used to do a lot of work around online education uh, in, the, in the 90s and early 2000s, um, is that it's a different way of, of learning. And so in the same way before the written word, we all learned by listening and reciting and memorizing. And all of a sudden, this new technology, the print, allowed us to not have to worry so much about remembering every word because we could read it again and review yeah. it. And so a lot of the technologies enable things that you can't do as well in a face-to-face -face environment. Mm. So yeah. people love to talk about the shy people who don't want to ask a question mm. in class. And you know, online, when you can type the question back to your instructor, mm. you know, is that good or not? Do you want to encourage people to speak up? Sure you mm. do. But this helps aid their learning. That's a simple example, but there are dozens or hundreds of others where actually, um, to quote Marshall McLuhan in a different environment, that the medium is the message, in a sense, around uh, radio and television. Um, and these technologies in learning are actually melding uh, much more uh, with the learning process, and it's hard to, to sort of abstract them and separate them apart. So I think, in many ways, um, things have gone better. And the other thing I would just say about it is, um, interesting research I, I, I heard about 20 years ago that said if you go into a school 
and you just have people show up and you paint the walls a different color. Learning improves. And it was this sort of um, example that sometimes researchers go in and something different happens in the learning process. And people love to say, well, that actually, we should do this because it changes. And maybe so. But the research pointed out just by showing up caused students to pay attention better and on all the rest of it. And I think during COVID and the quick move to online, one of the things that happened was um, instructors, by and large, put a lot more effort into teaching and thought, I have to do this differently. And that would have come through in a real way that would have impacted students. And students probably thought, geesh, I, I'm not in the class anymore. I'm not with my mates. I need to, I need to maybe pull up my socks a bit. So that's less about the placebo effect, which I know the painting the walls kind of was. But, but it was um, this different environment caused people to probably try harder all around, and that would have had a very positive impact on things. Yeah. Great. Trevor, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating to hear how you've actually navigated this process and what the future looks like and some incredibly pertinent lessons, not just for your sector, but I think others as well in terms of how you've been able to respond to it. So thank you. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Okay, so let's move on. Um, so we need to reimagine manufacturing. We do. Goodbye industri industrialist, hello circulist. That's the mantra of a movement headed by our next guest, Nick Gonios. It's a bold claim, but one that will resonate strongly with those of you concerned about the impact of traditional manufacturing on the environment, the economy, uh, and society as a whole. Imagine the, S the SAS model, that's software as a service, applied to your toaster or the lighting in your home, for example. So what's this um, big idea, and why does Nick want us all to sign up to this movement today? <laughs> so welcome, Nick. Um, Thank you. Circular sounds like the title of a sci-fi movie. What's it about, and what motivated you to set this thing up? Okay, so thanks for having me. It's been great. Um, look, I, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, I've spent the last 30 years in the technology sector. This is my 30th year. And uh, straight out of university, I actually wanted to be an architect or industrial designer as a kid. So I had a natural visual bent around seeing things and, and sort of manifesting things to life. And the 30 years that I've experienced in the tech sector, has I've seen this radical shift towards uh, a move away from bloatware and big hardware devices and this consolidation and, and you know, compartmentalization and taking materials out of the equation ever so slowly. And uh, ultimately moving towards away from these sort of inefficient and friction oriented type of uh, operating models towards a way of actually focusing more and more on the value of the customer and the outcome that they're looking for, right? So we've seen many, many different vendors in the space over the last two or three decades shift towards that approach. And we're now starting to see the sector, especially the technology sector, move towards uh, carbon neutrality or carbon negative positions right now, and uh, which are great to see. Uh, the question is how much of that is greenwashing, but that's another discussion. Um, and so with that in mind, I, I, I you know, fell, under, fell into this, some reading around this rabbit hole so called circular economy about three, four years ago and started doing just getting myself into this whole uh, thinking and space. And it was just amazing to see a whole new way of looking at the economy and society where we typically take from the earth, which we're really good at in Australia, right? We're amazingly good at taking stuff from the earth, right? Um, and then 
we're not as good as producing stuff out of it, but we can ship it and actually get it other people to produce stuff. And then we get them back anywhere in the world and we, we seem to use them on a regular basis, whatever it might be. It might be your toaster, it might be your, your, your lighting at home, it might be your car, it might be whatever it might be. And we do a great job at getting rid of it. And then when, it does, when we do get rid of it, we just don't know what happens with it. So we're just quite comfortable with the fact that uh, we live in this sort of now moment, but uh, typically have we, we've, been in, we've been engineered and designed to not worry about the, sort of the externalities or the issues in the world, which is the waste and the pollution that we're creating. So with that in mind, um, I wanted to come up with an approach that actually looked at getting more doers in the world to start doing. And we seem to uh, like to resonate towards titles and, 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 and sort of positions in market. And what came about was how do we create new, the new jobs of the future? The new jobs of the future uh, need to start using different language. And the language that needs to move away from us actually not being industrialist anymore to being circulous. So that was how the term came about. And uh, it's a play on words, but it's an important start to a movement towards uh, circularity and uh, eliminating waste and, uh, and friction and pollution in the world. So look, clearly this is uh, a big idea um, that's going to need backing from a number of different sources, uh, both private and public sector. Uh, are you talking to a range of people about how you can mobilize this idea? So lessons learned from the past, um, having done four technology startups myself and raised tens of millions of, do millions of dollars, um, I've burnt a lot, m most of that. Uh, because congratulations. congratulations. Well, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I've actually, I've, I have done, I've, I've done it and it's priced, they're priceless experiences, right? So it's something we need to recognize and do more of in Australia. Um, and with that in mind, recognizing this is not going to happen overnight. This is a long-term play. This is, this is a 50 to 100 year change in terms of um, what's required in the world. So the rest of this century has to have us shifting towards this sort of new approach to operating. And so with that in mind, we're at such an early stage. We're sort of at the birth of this. Uh, circular economy as a, as a space has been around probably about 10 to 15 years overall in its formality overall. Uh, there's a lot of activity happening in Europe. We're at the forefront of it um, with your, the Europeans, probably a best practice execution uh, uh, operators right now with European government um, actually allocating $2 trillion towards um, shifting the whole European economy to a circularist or circular economy approach. Uh, and uh, so with that in mind, uh, being based in Australia, even though we're sort of focusing on being global from day one, uh, the reality is we need to take baby steps. And the first phase heavily is around building awareness, activation and engagement in market and starting to build uh, focus and emphasis around uh, people that are oriented around the mindset of being a circulist to start with. So, so who, are your, who are the stakeholders that you're focusing on? So the stakeholders will be, uh, you know, the, 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 there are three type of cohorts of people or people that we're looking to engage with. You know, the visionary entrepreneurs who want to go forward and actually implement the new ways of operating organizations in terms of eliminating waste and recycling and, uh, and right to repair that it seems to be operating in the current world. So there's the first cohort. We're trying to empower and bring those visionary people to, to life with a particular approach to doing things. Designers, engineers, scientists clearly need some way of actually putting in context a purpose of why they exist and what they're doing, right, in this new world of actually saving what we have to be. And then the, and then the third cohort is the, are the industrial manufacturers, as I call them, who, who actually are stuck. I mean, we're, we're not, not going to save, save all of them. them. <laughs> we're not going to save all of them, but they're all stuck in the sense that they're taking short-term profits 
relatively, mm. but yeah. know they are being impactful in terms of what they're doing to the world, right? Yeah. And yeah. so they're stuck in this sort of version one, version two of the world right now. And, and with that in mind, they're the three areas. And then we've got obviously government from a policy setting point of view and the private sector in terms of capital uh, being deployed. And you may have heard of the term around ESG or impact investing as an area or responsible investing. That's sort of the alignment of all those different areas together with uh, social impact uh, bonds that have been fostered uh, internationally right now. Uh, you know, triangulation of all those different um, areas is sort of uh, sort of cover our 12 principles overall. So Sure. So you've got four technology geeks here mm -hmm. at the table. Uh, we all like the idea of MVPs and pilots and phase one examples of what it's going to be. Have you got any classic examples of what a circular economy might look like? Are there any examples that we can use? So we, we have, um, you know, there, there are half, a, there are, this is one of the challenges. The challenges are probably about 10 to, 10 to 20 organizations that are referenced all the time. And we need to do better, right? So we need to go from 10 to 20 to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of organizations that are basically on this pathway. And there are a couple of examples. A couple, one that I talk about regularly is uh, a company called Signify. And Signify is the old Philips commercial lighting business. Uh, which got spun out of Philips because Philips is now completely into sort of health tech and sort of healthcare, so to speak. And as part of their spin out, they being spun out of that organization, they did a rebrand, but they also re decided to reposition and reinvent who they are as an organization. And their business is heavily focusing around at the core area around you know, providing commercial lighting into mm -hmm. large premises, airports, hospitals, and the like. And uh, what they went about doing was saying, well, let's reinvent the business model that we're operating under, down moving away from people buying our infrastructure being lighting to getting installed into large projects, to having that model change towards organizations being the landlords or the tenants, actually deciding to start to buy light as the service, not the lighting, not the asset, right? So again, learning from the software sector we're moving towards this everything sounds, as a service. Yeah. It's everything as a service, basically, right? It's life as a service, it's everything as a service. And because of that, it's forcing them to actually rethink how they design these systems, these lighting systems, to eliminate waste, eliminate, uh, start to reduce the amount of materials that are in these, their products and systems they operate in. And secondly, also eliminate the energy requirements of the lighting system. So in essence, it, they, they are providing a subscription approach to lighting as a service, uh, and they are also taking margin out of the improving margin mm. by, 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 by uh, resetting the systems and how they're taking things to market. So, and then lastly, for me, what's exciting is the fact that what I've seen in, in, uh, in the software sector has been this shareholder value increase moving towards a predictable revenue model, right, mm, of, of yeah. subscription. And so the subscription economy, uh, and there's an amazing index by Zora who actually has the subscription economy index, and they track public listed companies that actually uh, are against the uh, Dow Jones and the like. And it's just kicking. It's just kicking and skyrocketing in terms of uh, valuations and, and, and value in market because of the predictability of revenues and, and the goodness that that, uh, that, that approach takes. So uh, when, you, when you look at all those different sort of elements, why not? But it's ultimately the value to the consumer as well because, Correct. I mean, not, I mean, it, the... The model enables them to have a, a better service that they can actually, you know, rather than owning a, a push bike, you can have a subscription to a push bike that is part of this circular manufacturing model of recycling it when it falls apart so you can reuse the components. So it's better for the environment. It's a lot better for me as a, as a rider or whatever. Mm. 
and I mean, it's easy to fall into subscriptions, but you know, it should be easier to manage as well. Costs. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting uh, from from a consumer point of view. There is, um, I mean, I'm, I think I don't know about yourselves, but personally, I'm, I've got a bit of subscription fatigue right now, right? Yeah. In terms yeah. of so Which much is, streaming and yeah. all these products yeah. and that we're using, right? And and so there's, that's probably the, the next stage of sort of behavioural um, impact and change, but. Uh, in terms of consumers and businesses and governments sort of operating this model, you know, imagine if you could actually, if you're building a $10 million plant and you don't have to commit to five million or $4 million worth of capital expenditure yeah. on products, right? Mm-hmm. And you move everything towards an operating model and a subscription model. Uh, it actually changes the whole financing of these types of um, models and experiences, you know, everything from the way you consider what you do at home to what you, where you work and where you, where you get educated, right? I was just thinking... Uh Based on what you were saying, I hadn't connected this before, but I, uh, I think I might be a fan of where you're wanting things to go. But from a personal perspective, because, you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, uh, this is a man who's been living out of a suitcase for the last year and a half. So that's what I was going to say is that uh, I've moved a few times. And the last time I moved, everything went into storage. And uh, my wife and I have been uh, basically every week a different Airbnb for, for most of last year. And we finally just sort of settled somewhere for a few months. But all our stuff is still in storage. And the, consu- you know, the SaaS model, my life is almost all entirely a SaaS model. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, the uh, you know, Airbnb, yeah, I, I never cleaned for a year because it didn't quite get dirty enough to clean <laughs> Somebody else did it, and you know. No, no, pause, so, so you weren't joking when you said earlier that you hadn't had a bath today. No, no, I, I've had a shower. That's right. No time for baths. But you're experiencing that benefit directly, aren't you? Then, because there's it's so much more convenient for you as a consumer. You you pay your subscription fee, and there's a whole host of things you don't have to worry about. Well, and I was thinking when we, you were talking about bikes, uh, I kind of miss my bike, but I I don't want to ride one of those rideshare bikes because they're they're not very nice to ride i don't think they at least they don't look like they would be and uh clunky but if i could actually get a good proper bike and pay a subscription to it somebody else takes care of it and i don't have to house it well volvo volvo's done the same thing actually they've actually created a a spin out called lincoln co which is a subscription mobility as a service business and they uh they are not just so this is the the challenge is that we could do it under a subscription sort of model but if the actual design and, and, and management and uh, support of the devices or products or exp- you know, uh, services in market are still done in the old way, mm. we're not solving for waste and pollution, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, it, yeah, so I was going to ask, does it imply like a, a level of vertical integration then to totally. all of these businesses? Because if you don't know the supply chain top to bottom, then somebody along the way is not, doesn't have that same incentive to you know, mm. pursue the same model. Because uh, somebody's, if you're like in the lighting, selling light, um, but you're buying your light bulbs from somebody, somebody's still incentivized to sell you as many light bulbs as they. Yeah. So right now, right now, a lot of the, um, a lot of organiz- So this is one of the, one of the challenges we have is, is actually supply, global supply chain thinking, is stuck in sort of old current world approach, mm-hmm. and what we probably need to shift towards is, is as local for local in terms of local supply chains, rethinking how parts and components get incorporated into. Uh, the availability of them, you know, I won't go into detail, but you know, we've got 3D printing coming through and, and modernization of that and the ability to, you know, produce from anywhere. Um, again, COVID is forcing us to rethink global supply chains as well. And uh, there's a great company called Arrival out of the UK that's been in Dorthmode for five years. 
and uh, just 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 IPO'd in, um, in the, on the Nasdaq, and uh, they they they've gone about um, building EVs, uh, focusing specifically in their phase one around uh, tr- um, utility vehicles for couriers, courier van companies, um, uh, being EPS, UPS being one of them, uh, and electric buses. So they're focusing much more sort of B two B in terms of service. Uh, yet their approach to the, the their path they're taking is to build these local uh, assembly in, in integration hubs around, around the world. So they're building their own paths, being vertically integrating, so controlling that, hmm. uh, being uh, sustainable in their design and even to the terms of the materials they're using. Uh, they're taking it out of subscription as a service offering to the to their customers, being government and and uh, and uh, and corporates. Yet yet they are focusing on lo- executing a distributed. Uh, local manufacturing uh, assembly capabilities in a thousand locations in the next three years as their model. So moving away from the challenge that we have been all know, which is you know China's become the manufacturing center of the world. Well, we need to start shifting away toward away from centralization to decentralization, right? And that's very much part of the ethos of the circleist approach. So how do you see that playing out in Australia? Because as you said at the beginning, we don't have an enormous number of manufacturers. We've got a lot of resources. Yes but not many people in the manufacturing business. So what do you think the first step is for that getting sort of going here? So there's, there's about, probably about 600 so-called manufacturers in Australia and over 94% of them have less than 20 employees. Mm-hmm. So in our view of the world, that's small business. In, in Northern Hemisphere, that's like a solo business, mm. right, in terms of size. Right, and most of them are sort of backyard hobbyists in terms of doing some welding and stuff like this. It's really, really, relatively archaic from my point of view. Um, but there, there is probably about there's probably about twelve hundred to two two and a half thousand range of mid-sized organisations that have the capacity to transform themselves in Australia mm-hmm. uh, to becoming uh, much more um, world world organised niche. Um, uh, enablers of uh, integration of robotics and smart collar jobs, as they're calling them, to actually move towards this sort of approach. Yeah. Uh, you know, with that in mind, uh, our financial st- uh, systems need to sort of also support them to transform into becoming these modern companies. Uh, and so, that sounds that sounds quite generic and sort of m- macro and abstract. And so, in order to bring that together, we've been sort of coming to um, we've been sort of thinking about what we're calling these green shots. And the green shots are sort of a take on moon shots, right? Um, and uh, these green shots are very much around how can we look at clusters of problems and try and solve for that particular problem, not try and solve for everything. So one well, the banks are common to everybody in the supply chain. Yes. So they're part of solving the problem. Yes, yes but also government is as well in terms of policy and procurement, right? So uh, with one of the ones that we're looking at right now, it hasn't firstly announced here today, is... Uh, is uh, the area around office fit-outs in just New South Wales. Here's an example, right? If you think about the, the, the bill of materials to doing an office fit-out, there are probably 20 or 30 manufacturers who provide a range of different products and sort of experiences within then that stack of building and operating an office and, and fitting it out and, and sort of taking it apart. That the budget the government spends in New South Wales is between 300 to $500 million a year on just within its own locations, right? Right, that's phenomenal. Right, when you when you start to add it up, it's quite a lot of money, right? And when you look, when you go one step further and say, "Hey, uh, where's where where is all this gear going?" After it's actually it's sort of, you know, so called um, finished its life, where does it actually go? 
Um, it seems to be sort of, uh, there's a policy globally, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you probably not, but in the fit-out space, which I've learnt, which is around make good. So there, there are clauses in sort of tenant agreements around make good, as you're yep. probably aware, right? Make good is based on this sort of notion of making good from what you've actually come from instead of leaving it the way it was. But the reality is what we don't deal with is the externality of all the stuff that's come out. Where's it gone, right? Yes, it, gone? Right. It, it makes no sense. Right. No. So, so the opportunity that comes about is what we're looking at is some type of a green shot. We can partner with government and actually invest and uh, transform 20 to 30 local manufacturers where they all playing a part around furniture and lighting and, and infrastructure and so forth and try and see if we can create circular precincts that just focus on solving that problem. So I'll spend all day talking about sure, this sure. stuff. But so yeah. Here's some stats that I know that you're going to want to talk about. So this is some uh, research that was published by the Cambridge Judge Business School on circular economy. Mm -hmm. So their circular economy centre. Mm -hmm. 90% of raw materials used in manufacturing in Europe become waste before the product leaves the factory. And secondly, 80% of products made in Europe get thrown away in the first six months of their existence. I mean, that is mind-boggling that there's that much waste built into the current manufacturing process. And you would think there would be such a compelling argument for wanting to try and change that because it's... You'd think so, yeah. but that's because of the fact that we only track one thing in terms of the way we, we measure and value things, being financial finances, right? Uh, right? So if we're only tracking revenues and profits and costs, mm. we're not tracking everything, are we? Right. So when it's, we, we then incentivize our organizations and our people to focus on that. It's one particular lens. And so it's the big challenge that most economists don't seem to like to accept is the fact that they don't, economists don't track externalities in the world in their modeling, right? And when I talk about externalities, I'm talking about impact around um, societal um, impact, good or bad. It could be good or bad that I just don't track it, right? Or impact to the economy and yeah. uh, in terms of climate change and everything else, right? So it's why we're going through this sort of um, uh, shift that's, you know, this whole discussion around sh uh, moving towards this uh, understanding and valuing the challenges with climate crisis, they're just not being tracked in finances. So that drives the behaviours in market, the way things are. I'll give you an anecdote right now. I've got a close friend of ours, a mate of mine, who's dad, dad at school, and we had um, dinner about a month ago. And um, he said to me, Nick, I won't name the organisation, but we did a, we ran it, we built a $2 billion um, precinct in Melbourne about two years ago. It took us three years, three to four years to complete. And uh, $2 billion project. And he said, do you, know how much, do you know that I was responsible to get rid of all the waste that the the, the builder and the subcontractors actually produced on site. I said to him, that's amazing. I can't believe that's the case. How do you have that happen? It is, it is the way the market operates, he said to me. And then he also said, do you know how much it actually cost me out of our own pocket? Was How much do you think it was out of a $2 billion project? What to manage to get rid of the waste. Mm. Yeah, so what they, what 100 million? Yeah, 100 million. That's actually, well, I'll take it easy. Okay. <laughs> How about 50? Well, I mean, if it, was, if it actually was 100 million, they'd be acting on it, right? But it was 25 to $30 million right, of, of cabling, excess cabling and just crap that just gets done because it's just, it's the way that we execute is the yeah. issue. Here, right? It wasn't resold, it was just dumped. No, it was just dumped. And then, then the impact to the world and our, you know, it's all landfill at the end of the day, right? Mm. So um, this, it needs to change. So I've committed to, you know, applying myself for the rest of my life in terms of this movement now and, and getting on with trying to see how we can um, improve the way that we, we, we do things. And so it needs to move towards a, away from a consumption-oriented, profit-only mindset towards a usage 
impactful approach, right? Yeah. It's more right. of a systemic issue, though, isn't it? I mean, it is. The, I mean, the, the what they're measuring in the financial metrics only put on them because of shareholders, and then so it's well, it's actually up to the consumer and how lots how we spend money or what we consider valuable. That's right. Because um, that's what's driving behaviour. Well, so. Mad Men. I mean, I use it as one of the narrative that I present is that um, if you look at Mad Men as a series, it actually is the reason why we have so much waste in the world. Yeah. Advertising oh, sector. Yeah, yeah. We have been brainwashed like for the last 70 years on how to buy more, right? right? And Mad Men yeah. is a great example, opening up the kimono on how it gets done, right? We all know that, right? So, so nobody walks into Harvey Norman and talks to the sales guy and says, I'm just about to buy a TV from you, but I'd really like to know what you're going to do to make sure it gets recycled. Because yes. they just look at you and say, well, it's nothing to do with us. We're just sending you the product. That's right. No Which, right now, there is actually that. funny, uh, to, 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 credit to the government, um, there is a new council that's been formed called the Product Stewardship Council which is a big movement happening around the world, uh, which I think deal with what I call the version one of circular economy, which is sort of fixing the band, basically putting band-aids on the system, mm. right? So we, we're trying to put band-aids on the system around waste. Uh, let's deal with waste. Let's deal with recycling. That's another band-aid, right? Let's deal another, with another band-aid, which is uh, the right to repair, right? Everybody wants the right to repair. Well, why should you have to repair if you actually shouldn't actually even own the asset in my view, right? So, and then lastly, this sort of product stewardship, which fits into right to repair. And so governments are sort of now starting to recognize they need to sort of act and do this, but it's not good enough from my point of view, because we're only putting band-aids on the current system. Mm. But given the sort of connectedness of every aspect of a supply chain, where, where do you start? Where, where is, what's going to be your first sort of baby step to engage either every aspect of the supply chain or, or do your green shots? Well, it's the green shots, really, which is actually demonstrating. I mean, they're, they're, they're massive MVPs at the end of the day, right? At a, at a precinct level of bringing organizations, helping them transshift to shift and transform themselves and also bringing finances to the table to also uh, apply social impact investing into the mix. It's not easy, it's, not, it's gonna be complicated, yeah. but it's about enabling that narrative. Ultimately, we, wanna, we, want, we want to, if we just did the, if we did the office fit out one, working with government and helping government redefine procurement and policies around that, right? Uh, together with uh, building new exemplars of 20 or 30 manufacturers in Australia that could become amazing export oriented companies of tomorrow. Um, we, we, could, we could eliminate so much waste in terms of the process and effort that goes into just, just the system of fit-outs. Yeah. And there are other areas that we've been looking at, which is, you know, sort of home appliances and commercial appliances in business. So um, there's many areas to tackle, but that's the problem. You've got to focus on one. And that's probably the lesson learned on my part in being in the tech sector for 30 years and, and, dunning, and sort of operating as a, as a co-founder and building out things. You know, the first tech venture I was involved in was a company called Peakow, where we bought, I think, six or 800 HP servers in, in, during the dot-com days. We raised $58 million, and we were, we were HP's most successful uh, client because we bought so many servers, right? And we ultimately never got to use them because we were 20 years ahead of ourselves, right? How much waste, right? But we raised 58 million and we burnt 50 of it within three and a half, two years. So when you mentioned... Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. When you, oh, oh, yeah. I'm, not sure, I'm not so proud of that, but anyway. No, I, I, I'm very proud. So in the sense that, uh, you know, we were ahead of ourselves, unfortunately. But anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah, tech, yeah. tech companies, and you mentioned right to repair, which is something I, I thought a little bit about. I mean, I don't, I, I kind of like the idea, but on the other hand, um, I'm, a, I'm an Apple yeah. product user, and I like the idea that 
they're creating an iPhone that I don't have to worry about uh, them designing in a way that require that allows people to repair it because then that introduces other design issues. Mm -hmm. And the way that they're managing that is to say, well, look, if you give back to us, we've got a robot that takes it apart right. and kind of reuses things. And whether they do that perfectly or not, sort of your thoughts on is you know com a company like Apple and how they try and manage that supply chain, uh, and and. Where's the line for right to repair? Maybe there's a better way. Maybe we don't need to repair because someone else can do it better. That's the point. I think I think you don't need to repair. I mean, why should we repair if we're under a subscription model and the phone gets taken back right. or the device gets taken back? Right. We should always have. We should, in my view, we should. One of the principles or the, the mindset is we should always have as new. But right? yes, it, we end up in a situation where we all wear the same beige clothing. And then, then drink from the same cups <laughs> and then everything. Well, I mean, that's that's uh, that's we're already that's happening with us walking around with Apple devices everywhere at the moment, right? So, uh, but but I think I think that to answer your point, like there's there's a company, an amazing company right now, which one of the case studies or the examples that we have is um, Fairphone. Have you heard of Fairphone? Fairphone is the most sustainable smartphone provider in the world, based out of the Netherlands, and they have designed a device, a smart, a actual smartphone device that is a modular and it's designed. And all product and all materials that have been produced in that device uh, have actually been uh, sourced from sustainable um, anti-slavery um, environments, right? Mm -hmm. So they have gone down a path of actually having an ability for me as a consumer that owns and commits to the cause to be able to upgrade a battery to the next level within the same design. Mm -hmm. So there is a notion of right to repair there, but it's based on the cause of being impactful as much as we can. Right. Yeah. So. So I think on that recycling thing, uh, there was a, a, an article I read about the Ellen MacArthur Institute Foundation, yeah. Foundation who had worked out that it's 90% um, cheaper to recycle copper mm -hmm. from consumer devices than to dig it out of the ground. Yeah. It's called urban mining. It's incredible. Yeah, 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 that's right. There's such a huge yeah, difference. Right. You would have thought that wouldn't that be sufficient to motivate most consumer goods companies to want to make sure that as much of the copper as they needed could be taken from recycled sources. You'd hope so. Well, wouldn't it be great if you, if you knew as a manufacturer all this stuff that we're shipping out and selling the stores is going to come back to us one day and mm. we can like, strip it out? And mm. If we treat it, if we have it as if we know that it's our asset, mm, that right. we're it's delivering value to somebody or an organisation, it's a completely shifted mindset, right? Mm. The same way Look Signified sees it in terms of the, what the service they provide. They own the asset being the lighting infrastructure they deliver the value that you're looking for, which is lighting, right? Mm. So that just needs to apply it everywhere, right? Yeah. So, But I think Apple's example kind of um, demonstrates that the tech sector has got an opportunity to be ahead of the game here, to actually be a leader in the whole circular economy thing, mm -hmm. because if they can start making this part of the value proposition, I think that that's going to appeal to a very, very big market. Well, I think it's already been happening. I mean, you've got you've got Cisco's and uh, Cisco and HP are heavily moving down this pathway. Uh, HP has gone down a pathway called GreenLake, as they call it. It's a complete service offering. You probably you probably have people HP guys hitting up all day about this stuff. But uh, uh, HP's got a got an as a service offering vision and, and approach. And GreenLake is their approach to this. Um, and then secondly, there's Cisco that is now committed to a as a service offering pathway. Mm -hmm. It's sort of integration of software and hardware and data, so to speak. Mm -hmm as a service offering yeah, because exactly. they do they I mean there is a you know the industry does recognize its impact to the world from a from a you know waste and e-waste I mean e-waste is our biggest one of our biggest issues right now right yeah. so I think green that's like 
selling compute as a service? It's actually uh, it's selling infrastructure as a service. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. For organisations that want to have their own data. Centers. Yeah, so that's having yeah. the box in your building, yeah. and then yeah. we own it and operate it. Mm. You're, you're getting compute from us. Yeah, it's under the Green Lake model. Sure. Okay. They might be sponsoring your first university. You yeah, never know maybe. That. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you say that. We're actually, uh, we are looking at a documentary series soon, so, uh, oh, which will, uh, right. yeah, which we're, we're talking about at the moment. And you're looking so. for sponsors? Uh, let's say, well, it's, <laughs> if you're listening HP, this could be a big chance. Yeah, so, yeah. Great, Nick, thank you very much indeed. Absolutely fascinating. I think the whole circular economy thing is going to gather momentum over the next months and years. There's no doubt about it. And I think what you're doing is amazing. So well done. And uh, we looked forward to hearing more about it. We'd like to come back to you in sort of two or three months' time and hear how you're getting on, because I know there are things that you couldn't talk about today, which hopefully in two or three months' time we can uh, probe you on. Happy to be back. <laughs> Great stuff. Yep. Thank you very Thanks much indeed. Me. Thank you, Trevor, as well. Uh, absolutely fascinating conversation. And we'll be back again talking to you in two or three months' time as well. Uh, Jason, Luke, any last comments you want to make? Oh, I mean, yeah, really interesting to learn about that journey went on, that a big movie, big company can move fast, which is, you know, a good lesson to, for everyone. And, yeah, the circular economy, I think it's just something that the, the world needs to adopt. Um, you know, what gets taken from the earth needs to be given back and... Otherwise, yeah, we won't be here much longer. Mm. Thanks, guys. Yes, Luke. Oh, no, sorry. No. Yeah. <laughs> Your turn. Your turn. Oh, no, absolutely. No, I was just going to say it's great to um, hear about um, that big ideas like that um, with the circular economy. I think these are things people need to hear more about. And also um, just to know under the right circumstances you can get a lot done in a really impactful way in a short amount of time. Um, a living example of that is, you know, in that organisation should offer hope to us all. Great. Well, thank you, guys, and thank you. Um, of course, it'll, we'll be back in four weeks' time on May the 26th with the next episode of That DV Show, so hopefully you'll be able to tune in for that. Um, if there are any comments or suggestions you've got on topics, please drop us a line and let us know. We're very keen to hear from you. Um, thank you, guys. Uh, great session, and goodbye from us here in Sydney. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to check us out on our website, digitalvillage.network, for our past episodes. We'll be back next month on the last Wednesday of every month as we are with more great stories and guests. See you then.